Hi everyone, welcome back to my uh, podcast. This is number podcast number four, I think. Yeah, podcast number four. It's um, now after Christmas and New Year, um, so um, all the best for all that. Um, I'm not a huge Christmas and New Year kind of person, so. Um, tends to kind of pass me by in, um, in a reasonably anonymous way. But uh, I did go away this year, which was nice. Got away for the first time in a long, long time. Um, and I was going to do this before Christmas, this podcast, but I got a bit of a cold. So sort of speaking and generally doing things like this was not going to be fun for anybody. So I sort of made a decision. I thought, well, once I get home, I'll um, got a bit of time before I go back to work. So I'll try and get this recorded um, before the um, for yeah for this last weekend of the sort of holiday period. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about um, this is called Foundations Two. Um, it's part of a series of podcasts that I wanted to make that um, that are just some of my thoughts on uh, understanding some sort of fundamental things that can help you uh, practice things in a certain way or understand things in a certain way, um, which maybe uh, has a kind of more lateral. Um, lateral way of looking at things i kind of i like that kind of thought of uh you know there's things from the book so to speak and then uh and, you know that's kind of it's a great way to learn is just you know to have a good book and practice the things in a book sort of crack on with it but it's also nice i think to to have conversations with other drummers uh, other musicians even but um sometimes you know with with the sort of specifics of the instrument and technique and stuff, I think it's mainly you know these conversations happen between drummers, and I've got some uh, got some good drumming buddies around the world, um, which I have conversations with about all sorts of different things to do with drums, and uh, these conversations always lead to um, to seeing things in a slightly different way, which is which is great. It's one of the reasons why I do encourage uh, people to, you know, interact, uh, not to do everything kind of off YouTube and do do everything where you're listening to somebody else telling you something or, or listening or watching somebody else playing something at you. I think I've learned more in my drumming life so far um, by having these interactions with other drummers, um, their conversations, maybe playing together or talking about approach to a technique or something but it's you know generally i've learned more through having these these uh, kind of um, interactions and the flam i wanted to talk about the flam today i've been mentioning this in, in a couple of podcasts and uh, anybody who knows me <clears throat> and as a um has heard me teach before or has uh, talked to me about sort of drum technique or ways of seeing rudiments knows that the flam is one of um is i find it one of the most interesting kind of rhythmic happenings if you like um 
and there's a bit of a dedication here. Well, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a definite dedication here to uh, an old friend of mine who may be listening, may not be. I know he's listening to a couple of the other podcasts. Um, but my old friend Elliot Henshaw, who's a uh, he's a great drummer. He lives in the UK. He's from a similar part of England to me in the north. Um, but he defected south years ago. He decided the big city was um, was the life for him, and he's done very well in London. Um, very very successful uh, drummer in London. Did all kinds of different work from you know like the heaviest kind of uh, West End reading gigs, walking in and like nailing it to to playing sort of pop gigs, uh, big band stuff. Um, yeah, Elliot's a, Elliot's a really flexible player, and he's, but he, one of the things that he really has is, is uh, he's got great reading skills, you know. I know he's kind of been very into kind of Vinny for years, and uh, one of Vinny's big things, when you, if you do any kind of research into Vinny and, uh, about his early kind of life, was that he was always an exceptional reader, um, and this opens lots of doors, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to go down a down a rabbit hole about reading at the moment but yeah um it's uh, i i didn't read for a long time i kind of gave up reading i did a lot of reading when i was a classical uh, percussionist when i was in my teenage years between sort of the age of well 13 to sort of 20 really i was playing classical percussion and not enjoying it that much to be honest with you but it taught me a lot of great skills and one of them was to read but when i kind of gave up classical percussion one of the things i gave up quite purposefully um, was reading. I didn't want to read anymore. I wanted to play um, creatively. I wanted to play from the ear. I wanted to do do things slightly differently. And it closed a lot of doors for me at the time. And then when I was about 30, uh, maybe a little bit later than that, uh, and this coincided with Elliot actually leaving uh, the north of England and going to London, I, I picked up some work that he used to do and it was all reading gigs and it was great because I kind of got back into reading and I was I realized I was pretty good at reading uh, again uh, but it's not something that I do I specialize in even now um, I, I don't tend to get asked to do lots of reading type gigs and I don't tend to push myself to do that um, the main thing I read now is I read when I'm uh, practicing obviously um, lots of the exercises that I practice require some kind of reading uh, when I'm teaching, obviously, I'm reading as well. Well, um, a lot of it's really just to do with um, when I'm kind of constructing exercises or I'm uh, doing sort of research into sort of teaching um, is when I mainly read. And when I'm doing... I, I do still play snare drum etudes, the snare drum pieces, because I believe that they're good for your technique. One thing I'd say about reading, and this is something to maybe think about, Again, don't want to go off too on, on a tangent here, but it's all related, really. Is that the great thing about reading is that it forces you to make sure that you know how you're sticking things, that you know you know which hands you're playing things with. If we just play kind of free all the time, which I did for for years and years, and I don't mean like playing free jazz, I just mean playing without reading. When you're kind of playing on your own terms. The one thing about that is that you're never forced to really think about how you stick stuff. And if you get 
kind of back into reading stuff or you get back into transcribing other players, both these things can, requ can require you to either play something that's written down or write something down that you're trying to learn and then make you consider stickings, you know. It's really interesting, that side of things, because it does train a part of your brain, you know, this neural network, this kind of plasticity of the brain. It does collect connect sorry those uh, those networks together uh, and when and if you say you were a good reader and stop reading and start playing very much uh, f without reading and without thinking about how you're sticking stuff that kind of network can become a little bit sort of shut down you know um but i think once you get back into it like anything it's like the riding the bike uh, you know, a scenario people say, well, you know, once you learn to ride a bike, you get back on it, you learn, to, and you, even if you haven't ridden for 20 years, you get back on and you can ride a bike because you've kind of learned to do it. It's somewhere in your brain, there's still those systems connected together, you know. And uh, yeah, so the reading thing is, uh, you know, was was very much kind of part of my life and it, and it became not a part of my life. Um, but uh, me and Elliot used to talk a lot about drum related things. Um, and one of the things that he told me about once is something that he'd um, not quite sure where he got the information from. I, I just credit this to him, um, and it was a it was genuinely for me a uh, one of those eureka moments in seeing something quite fundamental, very differently, um, and. Again, it kind of connects to this way of sort of laterally thinking about something, seeing something from a different angle, and suddenly a whole load of doors open, you know. And uh, the flam was one of these things because the the thing that that Elliot was was talking to me about was this idea of the alternating flam. When you're playing flams that are just flam, 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 like that, or double speed. You know, so uh, when you're playing alternating flams, um, he pointed out to me this very simple thing is that basically the alternating flam is a swung double stroke roll. Um, and at first I didn't really understand what he meant. And then suddenly, because I, I was thinking about the swing in, in the wrong in the wrong part of the rhythmical kind of uh, construction. And basically, if you think about uh, three rudiments uh, that we connect together. And this is this was where I really started to understand <clears throat> the the thing about the alternating flams. And this is something that I practice a lot, something that I teach a lot. I get all my students to learn and understand this fundamental connection between these three basic rudiments is that you learn to control how the double stroke is either straight or swung. So the first rudiment is a double stroke roll, obviously, which is kind of obvious, you know. So right, right, left, left, 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 right, or left, left, right, right, whichever, you know, whichever handed you are. That's left leading or right leading. Okay, so they are um, double strokes that are even, hopefully, in both volume and in division. That's the fundamental. However you want to, however, whatever speed you want to play them. Now, the thing that appealed to me about this uh, idea with the alternating flam and how it's connected to the double stroke roll, the thing that appealed to me particularly uh, because of the way I play, 
is that I am what I what I what I would call or class a double stroke drummer. My fundamental approach to most things involves playing doubles of some kind. Um, I attribute it to being lazy. Um, but it's also, there is a thing about feel connected to it as well. It doesn't sound the same as playing single strokes. They have a different sound to them. Now, <clears throat> when I got older, I actually really got in more into practicing single stroke stuff. Um, and I'll probably do another podcast talking about, um, about that thing that happened for me when I was in my 30s. It was something that I, I wasn't really that into playing single strokes i was all, when i was reading classical stuff when i was younger and i was and i was also practicing drum kit stuff i was always trying to find ways to play stuff that required the minimum amount of input so the double stroke roll was always half the input for me you know um now not to go into too much detail about the double stroke roll, but the way, the way I fundamentally think about a double stroke roll is, is, a, is a stroke with the wrist and then a collection stroke with the finger. And I do it when I play traditional grip or match grip, doesn't make any difference. That's how I think about the double stroke roll. So, this idea of the alternating flam connected to double stroke roll really very, very quickly connected with me. And I, I very, very quickly understood this, this, uh, this concept and was. And very quickly learned to play it pretty fast, which um, which was great. And then it started to open some other doors up, and I started in thinking about all the rudiments that I liked playing that had flams in them. I suddenly realised, hold on a minute, there's all these amazing possibilities to play flams kind of anywhere inside rudiments because I can just think about adding a double stroke. Because the, th the third rudiment in this little kind of trilogy... One is obviously the flam, one is double stroke roll, but the third one is one that was never in the Wilcoxon book, and it's called the Swiss Army Triplet, which, um, you know, is a common rudiment, which is known to most of us who practice rudiments. And the Swiss Army Triplet is basically... Uh, the sticking is right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. So it's a triplet... It's a triplet with a flam in it, but it's not a flam accent, which is... Flam accent is alternating strokes with a flam. And actually, the flam accent isn't alternating strokes with a flam, um, because when we get into thinking about how the flam is constructed, there's always a double stroke in there somewhere. Um, well, pretty exclusively, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of exceptions to that, but... Um, but this fund understanding this fundamental thing is really important. Now, the Swiss Army triplet, as we as as if you practice it, right, right, left, left, right, 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 left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left. So right, right, left, right, right, left is the triplet, and then right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right is inside that is an extra left, as you can hear as you can hear me saying it. Or that's just left, left, right, right, left, left. It's just the opposite sticking. You should always practice your Swiss Army triplets both ways because it's it's a rudiment that cycles back to the same hand. 
So these these rudiments are cycled back to the same hand, and I discussed this in one of the earlier podcasts. These these require us to to practice them effectively twice because we need to play them the other way. The paradiddle diddle, again, it cycles back to the same hand. Uh, I had this discussion in one of the other podcasts about the seven-stroke roll. It cycles back to the same hand. We have to find ways to practice these rudiments uh, so that we uh, we are attaining or trying to attain equality. Um, you know, if we're left-handed, then we're going to favour leading things with the left. If we're right-handed, the opposite is uh, is true. So, the Swiss Army triplet. As I'm saying the sticking, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. Okay, so now I've changed the rhythmic value and just straightened them all out, and now it's just right, right, left, left. But the actual sticking is right, right, left, left. One of one of them, one of the right rights is what I would say of equal value. The other uh, double. The left left is swung value, and that's where, if you think about that swung value in the left hand, if you swing both hands, then you end up with alternating triplets. Uh, sorry, uh, flams, uh, and and it has a kind of triplet feel. Uh, so the Swiss Army triplet. So I used to practice this exercise where I used to play doubles. Swiss Army triplet, and then the alternating flams. Swiss Army triplet, doubles. And then I used to start with the with the left hand and do exactly the same thing. So there you've got this simple idea of how to play alternating flams very quickly. So that's one part of the flam. Well, that isn't the end of the story by any means. But that whole kind of eureka moment, as I said, I do, I do attribute that to uh, my good friend Elliot Henshaw. Thank you, Elliot, for that. Um, we've had many discussions... And I used to have a video on my uh, old website, which was called The Hand-to-Hand -hand Flam. And, and again, that video had a credit to him on that video. And again, the thing that's great about sharing these concepts is, one, is that they can, they can help us understand something in a, in a clearer way. But you've still got to do the job of work of practising it. You know, it, it doesn't just make things happen. It's not like, oh, I can now play that because somebody's just told me that. You're still going to have to go away, practice your doubles, your Swiss Army triplets, and your alternating flams. <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, it's not just going to happen. Now, if you can't play double stroke rolls well or quickly, um, there is a, uh, there's a funny thing with the alternating flam, which I often talk about when I'm teaching, because it almost, you can almost play it quicker with kind of anti-technique, as in by, by not controlling the sticks in, in the usual way um, when you're just playing the alternating flams. But when you're playing, 
flams within rhythmical uh, patterns where you want to put a flam in. Because the theory behind this is that you can basically put a flam anywhere you like. And I'll talk about two exercises today uh, where you well, you can practice them and, and experiment for yourselves. One's the pataflafla, which has... Um, and there's kind of those four variations of it where you get the, the two flams at the beginning, two in the middle, two at the end, and then the overlapping flams. And the uh, and the flam accent, so this is moving away from the Swiss armor triplet into the flam accent, which is kind of hand-to-hand -hand, but has this, this swung double in it to create this flam. And then I put pairs of flams in my flam accents, uh, which I enjoy practicing that a lot, which turns things kind of into groups of four, which is, again, linked to the pataflafla thing. And you'll hear that when we talk about the exercise. But I'll get... I'll get back to that in a bit. The, the the thing that I really want to talk about first is about the flam as a rhythmical happening in comparison to it being a statement sound. Uh, so I talk about this a lot when I'm teaching as well um, from my experience. So I studied classical snare drum when I was young and I, I talked about that in the earlier podcasts. And... Uh, one of the things I learned to, to do was to play, um, you know, kind of classical snare pieces um, and play in orchestras and, you know, play snare drum in that situation. And the thing that I noticed that was different about playing drum kit was the kind of rhythmical um, construction of, of, of a flam. Um, and also, even maybe the drag, but the drag, again, there always tends to be a stylistic interpretation thing with the drag, because sometimes you can play a more open drag, which is like a three-stroke roll, really, you know, as opposed to that kind of tighter sound. Or... Or... which is kind of a tighter thing, sort of playing the same thing there, but one has got a slightly more open um, sound to the drag than the other. And so they, so some people call it a three-stroke roll. Wilcoxon does. Um, some people call it a drag. Anyway, one sounds to me what I call more like a statement sound, like the flam thing behind an orchestra. When you play a flam in a classical situation, in an orchestra you play... Okay, I'm not particularly thinking about the rhythmical value of the flam there. I'm just thinking about it as a statement sound. Blat, da, 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 blat, da, blat, da, whatever you want to, however you want to sort of sing it. Whereas if I'm playing drum kit, it, everything is groove for me. Everything is linked to the inner subdivision of the music that I'm playing. And so the flam becomes something different than the statement sound approach that I had when I was learning classical snare drum. And many, many years ago, I was watching, uh, I used to be into drum videos when they, when they sort of first came out. The early days of drum videos was this, this company called DCI, uh, DCI Music. Um, and there was a few, uh, used to be on VHS videos um, out. They were really expensive. Um, but I used to go into a drum shop in Manchester where uh, a couple of good friends of mine worked, uh, John Andrews and uh, Lee Mullen, and 
they always had these videos on. They were, they were on all day, you know, and, and they just kind of go round and round and put different things on. And and uh, I remember they they had these Steve Gadd in session video, and it was it was always like it's always like premium videos, always on this like kind of high up top shelf kind of vibe, you know. And uh, it was expensive, but I sort of one day I decided. Uh, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy this video because uh, I've been watching it in the shop, and there's some really cool things on it. And, and if anyone's never seen it, it's, it's got some really iconic moments on it. It's got some. Uh, there's the famous um, uh, whatever it's Ampex tape box thing with the brushes, and he plays "Bye Bye Blackburn" a ballad on the back of this brush with Rob Wallace holding the box. And if anyone's not seen that, it's worth watching. Um, it's great. You really yeah, get to because he's such a great brush player, Gad, and he's playing it on the back of this tape box, and uh, and it's just it's just super cool. But the, the 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 video, the the way in which this thing is kind of cut is in two halves. One is like the kind of rock and pop electric bass, and uh, I think Richard T plays. Does he play Rhodes and piano? But anyway, it's Richard T and Will Lee. Um, I mean, Will Lee's one of my favourite ever musicians, just amazing. Uh, and Richard T as well, they're, they're brilliant. But obviously, Gad played a lot with Richard T when he was alive. They did a lot, a lot of stuff together and uh, and has played a lot with with Will Lee as well. Um, so the first half of the video is that. And the second half of the video is, um, is, an, is a jazz, more jazz-focused... So it's with uh, Jorge Dalto and uh, George Dalto and uh, Eddie Gomez uh, playing double bass, and uh, and George Dalto just plays um, plays acoustic piano, and they play some bebop sort of swing stuff, and they play quite a lot of Latin stuff. And on that, he talks about this Mozambique rhythm, which Gad is very famous for. Um, it's recorded that rhythm on a lot of records <clears throat> um, with Paul Simon, with you know, Michael McDonald, all, all sorts of people. If you if you do your research, it's funny where it crops up, and and it's and it, it's so disguised, it's so groovy and disguised in the music. It, it, it's it's not as obvious as you think, you know, and it's a real signature thing of Gads, and uh, and the rhythm of it is. Um, it's kind of based on a sort of Cascari kind of thing, but he he attributes it to Don Elias. That's where he said he learnt this rhythm from. Don Elias was a great percussionist drummer, sadly no longer with us, but uh, great, uh, great player, really influential um, player on that scene. Um, and, yeah, and Gad kind of... Uh, there's another video where he explains the rhythm, but in this video he talks about this flam at the beginning of it and he, he talks about it as a kind of as a rhythmical happening as, as a kind of it's it's in a specific pocket and he talks about this offbeat quaver triplet and i never kind of got my head around this before and i was watching this video and I, it was like another moment where the like the light bulb went on um where i was like oh yeah, yeah he's he's not he's not playing that just as a kind of flam like a classical sound he's playing it as a, a actually so it's specifically behind the beat, but in time, and it's and he's and it's in this kind of triplet pocket. So the the rhythm itself is 
So it's got this. So there at the beginning it is, is I'm playing it very open there, but it's to get 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 So it's like on the offbeat triplet quaver. Now you could play it as a flam. Okay, I'm sort of bringing the left hand out. The left hand goes da 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 da. One, two, and four kind of vibe. But I'm I'm sort of bringing the left hand out a bit in the rhythm there. But if you just play it as a sort of normal, just as a kind of flam, it makes the whole thing a little bit square. Whereas if you're if you have this kind of If you have it in that pocket, that offbeat uh, triplet pocket, then it makes the whole thing sound a bit more groovy, and uh, and that's the that's the accented stroke of the flam. So the grace note is actually on the beat; it's not before the beat. So if you you know when we're learning flams classically, the grace note that creates the flam is always preceding the beat, isn't it? Good at do 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 good at no one's playing. No one's playing that flam off the beat. They're playing the flam onto the beat. And uh, and suddenly I was like, oh, actually, that sounds like all these other drummers, especially particularly Latin drummers and, and quite fusion drummers that I was listening to a lot at the time. Uh, Vinny, again, somebody I was listening to a lot. Um, and um, uh, Horatio Hernandez uh, as well, this guy, this uh, guy, this Cuban guy who wrote that book, Conversations in Clave, great, uh, <clears throat> great. Latin fusion drummer, brilliant, amazing, amazing, amazing independence coordination player. But, but again, all the feel, it all sounded like the stuff was in triplets, even though it was quaver music. It was all it felt like it was these offbeat triplets going on. So, those two things were really quite had quite a profound effect upon me um, when I was trying to understand the flam. And uh, so when I started practicing the flam um, and I started looking at flam accents, and these are a couple of exercises you can, you can look at. The, f the first one is, if you think about the flam accent, I think about it as a, as a very slow rhythm in three. Um, and you can play it actually with one hand, but I'll play it with two hands now. It goes, da two, three, da da one, two, three, two, two, three. So that's basically uh, a very slow, 
flam accent. Left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right. So you're hearing in the middle of that where I'm going right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left. So there's a double in there that's swung. And I'm thinking about the inner value of that as triplets. However you want to think of the threes, it's up to you. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. There's lots of different systems. Okay. So if I'm playing flam accents, the flam is always in the inner triplet pocket. Now I'm playing it with one hand. I'm playing it with one hand there. Okay, because I'm always thinking about the inner triplet, okay? Because the rhythm of the flam is within the inner triplet. If it's just played as a statement sound with no kind of rhythmical connection to the inner triplet, again, it starts to sound a little bit square. And, and I've completely and utterly um, got rid of that out of my playing now. I, I just um, can't play in that way. And that's fine. Uh, you know, if, if, if people uh, want someone who plays flams in a different kind of way, in a more square way, that's kind of not that I'm not the guy for the gig. So that's fine. Um, but the thing that you can do with, with, the, with this exercise is you can move that grace note onto the beat. So at the moment, the grace note precedes the beat. One, two, three. Okay. You can play it actually like this. Okay, you hear that? Yeah. Or diga at the end, actually. One, two, one, two, three, 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 one, two, three. So you're playing the grace note on the B and you're playing the accented part of the flam, as in the second the thing that creates the statement sound, if you like which is the second stroke, you're playing that on the second inner triplet semiquaver. So you think, well, wow, you know, what, what does that mean? Um, well, it means nothing in one sense. Um, it just means that I'm very sad. But in another sense, when you're thinking about moving around the instrument and you want to put flams into patterns... What it means is that you can place the grace note slightly later uh, and give yourself slightly more time. If you're moving between doing a flam from snare to high tom to snare to, to floor tom and you want to play hand to hand or um, you want to play the, you know, the high tom accent with the left hand and you want to play the, um, the floor tom accent with the right hand, so you could have this thing of da 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 da. You see what I mean? If you've got, if that's your pulse, one, two, three. 
These very, 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 very slow and very open-sounding flams at the moment. It's just to demonstrate the idea of it. But you, you can put that second grace note for the second flam actually on the beat. You can go... as opposed to... OK, now at that speed, it's like, well, you know, so what? But add some speed to it, add some pace. You realise that the ear, the ear just follows what it imagines it's, it's hearing. The ear doesn't hear the subtle difference, but you know you've got slightly more time. Uh, and when you listen to some some great players out there that seem to get around the instrument in a very ergonomic way, they're they're all using this system. They're all using this system of of slightly manipulating where they are beginning the flam, where the actual grace note is placed. Okay. So a couple of nice exercises to practice as well that will help you. Just with this alternating flam idea, one is this this one I practice a lot, uh, which is the flam accent. And uh, okay, so uh, I don't practice it like this, really tight. I practice it. Da -da 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 -da. Almost, almost, it's almost like a swing rhythm. And what I do is I put pairs of flams together. Um, so I will play um, a whole bar of, of, of uh, triplet quavers. One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three. And then I'll play a whole bar where I put two together and then two single strokes. Two together, two single strokes, two together, two single strokes. So it creates this kind of rhythmical feeling of, of three groups of four as opposed to four groups of three. And it sounds like this. Okay. And then what I do is I move those flams through the triplet. So the next pair come on the second and third triplet quaver. And then I do another bar of uh, triplets that are just on the beat. Uh, flams on the beat and then I'll do the third bar will be where the the flams are on the third and then the first and then you end up with three at the end and the whole pattern sounds like this And then the last bar, which I've just stopped at, will be a whole bar of alternating flams. Okay. And I'll usually practice that um, over quite a long period, 15 minutes, probably around 160, between 164 and 172 BPM, depending on the, how warmed up I am. And you get this really nice kind of flowing feeling when you get the, with the pairs of flams together.
So I'll tend to sort of, uh, once I've got, kind of got kind of got into it, I'll tend to start be a little bit more improvisational, but there are just sort of some examples there. Um, I'd normally do a little bit slow and that'd be warmed up. I mean, that, that speed was a little bit beyond where my, my hands and my brain are at the moment, um, having not played for, I think, two weeks nearly, sort of. Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? how you get out of practice so quickly. Um, but yeah, I tend to be quite improvisational with it. But the other one that I also practice alongside it is the pata flar flar. Um, and I do the four variations. So you move the pairs of flams through the semiquavers, through the 16th notes. So it sounds something like this. And they're quite nice. It's quite a nice exercise. And then again, I'll always I'll always round off if I do like you know uh, go through the whole cycle of them. I'll always round off with a with a whole bar of uh, alternating. And then sometimes I'll also add in some doubles after the alternating. So sometimes I'll practice things like this. And sometimes it's go between doubles and, and alternating flams within the same bar. Etc. etc. Just different things really. Um, but the, the the theory behind it is that you you should be able to put a flam anywhere if you've practiced um, double strokes within sixteenth notes, semiquavers. And then within triplets. So uh, I like I like practicing five strokes, the triplet version of the five stroke. So that one has got the three accents in it. One's at the end. So one's, one's at the end, one's in the middle, and then one's at the beginning. And it's right, right, left, left, right, left, left, right, right, left, in triplet quavers, triplet eighth notes. So um, I often practice lots of different combinations of those kind of rudiments. Um, and, then, and then put this flam into them. And, uh, yeah, and, and I think that if you just have that, those... Those understand those two fundamental things about the flam. One is that it's a swung double stroke roll. So in one of these rudiment foundation exercises that I that I wrote, which I was talking about in Foundations One, uh, the exercise was simply playing uh, eighth note doubles, and then they were triple eighth note doubles, and then it was sixteenth note semiquaver doubles, and then it was. Uh, triplet 16th notes and it was demi-semi 32nd notes 
And the idea of the exercise was was just to spread out, just to get this understanding of spreading out the doubles. So it would start like one and two and three and etc. etc. Now that's really slow and very open, but it's just a way of understanding uh, how the physics of this thing works. But but the first thing to get down is to try and get try and get the flams alternating to about that speed, um, which is. Like 95 BPM or something like that. Yeah, probably that kind of, maybe 96. Not sure, just double check the tempo. Uh, give me a metronome. What's this metronome? Yeah. Yeah, that's 95. It was maybe a little bit, it was maybe 96 actually. Yeah, it's slightly more on top. So, you know, that's a nice, that's just one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a. That's just uh, flams at 96 alternating uh, in 16th notes, semiquavers. I always aim to get the flams into the 140 to 150 mark. So you've got this kind of, uh, that's the metronome at 140. So what I'll do is I'll do I'll do some semi-quaver or sixteenth um, note uh, doubles. Just practice things like that. Um, and I'll work my way up from hundred about one hundred and ten. So I would definitely not go in straight like that. One hundred and forty. That's um, stupid. Um, but. Yeah, always always work your way up to things. But that's just basically it would be so you've got the you've got the semi-quavers. You're trying to get that. And then Yeah, you're trying to get the then you're trying to get the uh, the flams alternating. And it's funny because at the moment I go through different stages. Uh I'm finding it easier leading the flams at high speed with the left hand. The right hand, I don't know, it's funny. I don't know why. It's just a funny thing. Um, so, yeah, is there anything else to say, really, uh, about this? I think that's kind of covered everything. Um, the main thing is understanding these two concepts. One is the swung double, and the second is that you can put the flam into uh, into a specific rhythmical um, division. So it's not just a statement sound that's played with a grace note to a accented um, stroke, just like. It can actually be. The two things there uh, I'm thinking of very differently. One, I'm just playing... And it's that old analogy, you know, how um, I was taught to play a flam. So there's that thing of like, you know, if you're right-handed, the left-hand stick is down near the drum and the right-hand stick should be vertical uh, 90 degrees. And so it's like the 
the, the simple thing, I remember my teacher, Max, saying, which one's going to get there first, you know? And uh, and it was like, and he said, then and then you must reverse the position. So you you. So I've now gone f to the opposite position. My right hand now is w about an inch off, uh, about two centimeters off the off the pad, and my left hand is basically vertical, sort of ninety degrees, um, to the pad. And again, which one's going to get there first? So that kind of that analogy with the flam is how I kind of learn, and it, and it can really instill a sense of, of, oh, this is how you play a flam. And very little attention is paid to the actual the rhythmical value of it, you know, how you can rhythmically place the flam, how you can manipulate it in relation to where, where your grace note starts with movement, um, and also, you know, with obviously with sound and different types of accents and... Uh, different open and, and closed versions of the flam. Same with the drag, you know. The drag can have a very, 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 very uh, tight grace notes or very open grace notes. And it tends to become, you know, a three-stroke roll when, when you get very open. Um, and again, if you learn, like, rolling in rhythm, Chaz Wilcoxon, you know, that... Um, trying to find my copy of that book, actually. I've got it to hand here somewhere. Is that it there? Just gonna, I was just going to read what he writes i'm pretty sure he calls them um three strokes but he but it also a drag yeah sorry yeah i was looking on the shelf there um yeah but at the end there's a there's a passage at the end of that you know, which is very syncopated and um and they're like three strokes um but you can think of them as a drag as well you know so yeah, so that's kind of that, really. Um, didn't do any housekeeping today. Just thought I'd sort of get straight into this one. Uh, a bit of rambliness at the beginning about different things. But generally, yeah, tried to sort of um, be a little bit less um, rambling about other things. Uh, just to say, this is part two of, I think it's going to be... A three-part series, but what will probably happen, knowing me, is I'll do part three and then something else will occur to me that actually means it's there'll probably be part four, maybe even part five of this kind of foundation series. But the, ne the next podcast I'm doing will not be Foundations 3. The next one I'm doing, um, I'm uh, not sure whether it's going to be this thing about kind of, um, sort of performance anxiety or whether I'm going to do something about um, time, metronome, and the drumometer. Um, now, some people may know what the drumometer is, some people may not. I'm not going to go into it now. But the drumometer is an interesting tool, um, which uh, isn't hugely known about in the drum community, I don't think. Um, it's known about in, a, in, a, in quite a small part of the drum community, and it's uh, it's got a, quite a following, I think, in that um part of the community but i wanted to talk about time and different ways of practicing with a metronome and different things that i've learned in the last few years uh, moving away from common approaches to practicing with a metronome that sort of instill a better sense of ownership of the beat using some polyrhythmic um, approaches to playing with the metronome and talking about the drumometer uh, and how useful the drumometer can be 
uh, with when trying to practice at specific speeds and playing certain amounts of beats within certain amounts of time. Because if you're playing at a certain tempo and playing a certain division, you're going to play a, an exact number of beats, um, which is not something I don't think any of us ever think about. I certainly don't. But I found it quite useful when I was practising uh, one new technique quite a few years ago, probably about 15, 14, 15 years ago when I got into, I got away from playing exclusively doubles and started getting into playing singles and started learning finger control and stuff. And and uh, the drumometer was really useful because it, it sets these specific goals in relation to numbers of beats within a certain amount of time. Um, so that's, I might do that as my next, uh, the next podcast. I'm not 100% sure. Um, it might be that or the performance anxiety. And then, uh, in between either of those two will be Foundations 3, which is um, about this kind of uh, setting a new standard, I call it, for yourself and about the uh, about how you organise yourself and understand that process, uh, which is a really valuable process, which I think can be really good for, for us all when we're, when we're sort of struggling with practising and trying to find... Um, ways of knowing that we're making progress. It's hard when you're on your own. It's a lonely journey. I always call it the lonely journey, um, which is why it's good to check in with people because you can feel you can feel very isolated when you're practicing on your own and you feel like you're making no progress when you're actually probably making quite a lot. You know, we live with ourselves 24-7. Um, other people see our progress and we don't tend to as much. But you can... Find some ways when you're practicing to to set a standard, a new standard for yourself with things that you practice, which do give you a sense of knowing that you have made a significant marker in your progress. It's really important that. Um, but, you know, I do encourage, us, uh, or encourage you and myself and all of us to not be alone in this and to... Talk with your peers, find a good teacher, just share information and have conversations about what you're practising. Uh, it's really, really important, that thing. Um, we, we live in the world of antisocial media, um, which is always uh, my kind of feeling quite a lot of the time with social media. Uh, it can feel very antisocial. And actually, uh, it's a great tool. It's a great way of communicating. So, uh, yeah, keep those keep those um, lines of communication open and uh, yeah share what you're practicing and um, have conversations so thanks for listening and uh, i will uh, see you again very soon bye for now